Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sabadika, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program, and we're all the way at the end of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is volume one. We've been teaching now for close to seven months and going through this book chapter by chapter by chapter, and we're all the way at the end of the book where there's this additional content that is titled Frequently Asked Questions. These are questions that are frequently asked by students in multiple different ways, and they weren't necessarily questions that fit into any particular chapter that has already been shared, but instead I grouped them together here so that you can learn these frequently asked questions to help you develop your practice. And there's another section here in the back of the book that's titled, How to Determine If You Are Enlightened. And I put it all the way in the back of the book for a reason because you would have to have read the entire book and probably read it multiple times and practice quite a bit before you're actually ready to determine if you're enlightened or not. But when you are nearing close to enlightenment and the mind is actually enlightened, you'd like to know that, right? And in order to determine whether or not you're enlightened or not, you would need to know how to do that. And the more that you understand about how to determine if you're enlightened or not and what enlightenment is itself, the more likely you are to actually be able to attain it. Because somebody who's actually enlightened, they will know that they've attained enlightenment. And in order to do that, there's things in the back of the book that I share to be able to guide you in helping you to understand whether your mind is enlightened or not. If you've just started this program seven months ago, you know that you're not enlightened yet, but at some point the goal would be that you will attain enlightenment. So as I mentioned, you would like to be able to know that you've done that. And the more that you know about enlightenment, the more you'll be likely to actually attain enlightenment. Because if you didn't know what the goal was, you wouldn't actually be able to attain it. So I'd like to welcome all of you to today's class. This first question that is very frequently asked is, how do I become a Buddhist? This is one that is frequently asked by various students, whether it's a private message or whether it's in Facebook groups or in classes and things like this. And what I would share with students about how do I become Buddhist is the first thing is, is this term Buddhist or I am a Buddhist. It's not something that I suggest that anybody allows the mind to grab onto. This is just a label. This I am a Buddhist oftentimes hinders the mind from actually being able to experience enlightenment because this is the mind kind of longing and yearning and trying to find that I, that self, where part of what you're doing on this path to enlightenment is letting go of these labels, not identifying with I am a Buddhist or I am a doctor or I am a lawyer or I am a student or any of these kind of things. 
the Buddha describes how you need to eliminate the I am in order to get to enlightenment and no longer identify with these things. So rather than discuss how do I become a Buddhist, because I don't suggest that even the Buddha was a Buddhist, right? That term didn't exist until after his death. So even the Buddha himself wasn't a Buddhist, just like Jesus Christ wasn't a Christian. These are all things that came up afterwards. And oftentimes when people label themselves with a certain thing, this is where the mind gets those conditioned pleasant feelings. If you hear agreeable things related to that label, and then if you hear disagreeable things, you're going to experience painful feelings related to that label. And then once people have these labels, sometimes they fight and argue and bicker over who is right and who is wrong, who is better and who is worse. And instead, I suggest that the better question here that a student could actually ask is instead of how do I become Buddhist, the best question is how do I attain enlightenment? That's what I would suggest that the average student should ask rather than asking how do I become a Buddhist, how do I attain enlightenment? Well, the way that someone attains enlightenment is they need to learn, reflect, and practice the teachings in order to cultivate wisdom with the guidance of a teacher. And by having the guidance of a teacher, you don't believe the teachings. Instead, you learn them through classes, through books, through videos and podcasts and things like this. And then after you learn, you start reflecting and working to independently verify the teachings. And then you start moving the teachings into practice. You start practicing the Eightfold Path, which is the core and central teaching of the Buddha with all the other teachings plugging into that. And then with this wisdom that you cultivate along the path, your mind gradually awakens to making wiser and wiser choices in your life. In terms of your professional and your personal relationships, you start making wiser decisions about how you interact in the world because you understand these natural laws better and better. That's what this path is all about. It's about learning. It's about cultivating wisdom. It's about training the mind and doing that with the guidance of a teacher, but always realizing that you're on your own independent journey. You're on your own independent journey to enlightenment. The teacher and these resources are all here as guidance for you, but only as you reach out and seek that guidance. So in order to progress on this path, you would need to understand these things, that your, your goal isn't to become a Buddhist, but instead, I would encourage your goal to be that you're interested in attaining enlightenment. And there shouldn't be a time when somebody says, are you ready to convert to be a Buddhist? Well, no one's ever said anything like that to me ever. I'm sure there's people in the world that do those kind of things, but there's nothing, as you're going to hear me share in today's class, there's nothing that declares whether you are a Buddhist or you're not a Buddhist. Because who determines what a Buddhist is and who determines that you are a Buddhist? So once again, this is just a label that you don't need to adopt in the mind. And you can instead just keep yourself focused on understanding what it takes to get to enlightenment. That's the ultimate goal. The second question here is, do I need to give up all my possessions, occupation, and relationships to attain enlightenment? Where this question oftentimes comes from is that a lot of the students who learn with me are coming from a background of having been exposed to Christian teachings or the tradition of 
Christianity. And in Christianity, oftentimes what is taught is that everybody should conduct themselves to be the same like Jesus Christ and that they should kind of walk in the same lifestyle and the same conduct as Jesus Christ. Well, if somebody is coming from a tradition of Christianity and they've been taught that, when they move into learning these teachings, they might think that their goal is to emulate the Buddha and emulate his lifestyle. But that's not what you're trying to do in order to get to enlightenment. He's an ordained practitioner. He was a aesthetic. He wore robes. He walked away from his home life and he went out into the forest and ultimately he comes back to be around his family, but he still never lives back in the royal palace ever again. So you're not trying to emulate him in terms of the way that he gave up all of his possessions, his occupation, and essentially his relationships, but he still had relationships. He still was around his son, his wife, his mother, his cousins, his father. His mind just wasn't attached to these people when he was then functioning as a teacher. So you don't need to give up your possessions, your occupations, and your relationships like an ordained practitioner would in order to progress closer and closer to enlightenment. Instead, what you need to do is eliminate the mental attachment, that craving desire attachment, the mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. That's what you're working to eliminate from the mind. But you can have possessions, you can have an occupation, you can have relationships and get to enlightenment. But you'll navigate these things much differently as you cultivate more and more wisdom. Your mind will relate to these things differently. And it's going to feel strange as you move from this unenlightened mind to functioning more like an enlightened being. It's going to feel strange because you're kind of used to doing things one particular way as you did in the past. But as you see that that led to discontentedness and it wasn't working. So now as you gain this wisdom and you start functioning in different ways in your relationships, it's going to feel a bit strange and a bit odd. And this is why the mind kind of struggles at first. But then as you get used to practicing something like true love without attachment, that can feel more and more normal for you. And you'll feel the health in that and you'll feel the peacefulness and the joy in that and then you'll be able to do that more and more readily but you don't need to eliminate the possessions occupations and relationships because you're going to need these things in order to sustain your life you can't go through life without relationships you as a household practitioner you're going to need an occupation and you'll have certain possessions but you just need to train the mind to not have mental longing and a strong eagerness chasing after the objects of your affection, having this yearning and longing with these possessions, your occupation and your relationships. Number three is what is reincarnation and rebirth? Are they the same things? The Buddha taught the cycle of rebirth. And I'll explain this to you first before I talk about reincarnation, because the Buddha didn't teach reincarnation. Some people relate reincarnation to what the Buddha taught, but he actually didn't teach that. He taught the cycle of rebirth. The word that's in the Pali Canon, which is the original source text, is the word samsara. This word samsara is translated to be the cycle of rebirth. But as you hear me explain what the cycle of rebirth is, a better way to think about this is the cycle of new existence. 
because there's nothing that's actually being reborn. Because when we think about rebirth, it sounds like there's something from the past that is being reborn into the future. But this actually isn't what the cycle of rebirth is or the cycle of new existence. The way that you can think about the cycle of rebirth is that there's this cardboard box A, and this is kind of like a previous life. And then there's cardboard box B, which is like the existing life or the current life. At the end of cardboard box A, if there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, that's the fuel that causes rebirth. And that means there's going to be a new existence. There's going to be a new cardboard box. And at the end of this cardboard box life, whatever is in the mind, craving and certain memories are essentially going to be picked up out of cardboard box A and put into cardboard box B. And this is why people in a new existence can have memories of a past life or they can have certain cravings that they're experiencing in this life that are actually from a previous life. So there's nothing that's actually being reborn. Instead, it's just craving, desire, attachment, and residual memories that are moving into this new cardboard box. These two cardboard boxes are completely different. There are different colors, different shape, different textures, different sizes. They're completely unique and different. There's nothing that moves from one cardboard box to the other other than the craving and the residual memories. So it's not like the Buddha taught that there was a soul that maybe moved from one to the next. He never taught that way. And this is oftentimes what is taught as part of reincarnation. What people typically teach as part of reincarnation is that there's a soul in the body and that because of that soul, then when that one dies, it moves to a new body. And it's essentially the same exact person, just in a different body. But this isn't what the Buddha actually taught. And this is in conflict with three of his main teachings. One of his primary teachings was the universal truth of impermanence, that things are constantly changing. There's not this permanent fixed state that these things are arising, changing, and fading away that this physical body and this mind are not permanent. So this idea or this concept or this belief in reincarnation is in conflict with the universal truth of impermanence. It's also in conflict with the universal truth of non-self, that there is no self here. And it's also in conflict with the Buddha's undeclared teachings. In his discourses throughout his 45 years of teaching, he shared many, many teachings, countless teachings. But then he also talked about his undeclared teachings. He said during his life and in a discourse what his undeclared teachings were. And one of his undeclared teachings, he shares that he didn't teach whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. Whether the soul is the same thing as the body or whether it's separate from the body. He just left it as an undeclared teaching. Because the concept of a soul conflicts with the universal truth of impermanence and it conflicts with the universal truth of non-self. So he just left it as an undeclared teaching. So this concept of reincarnation doesn't match to what the Buddha actually taught. Instead, you should think about this as the cycle of new existence because every single existence is a new existence. There's a new body and there's a new mind that comes together 
for this existence. And then when this existence is over, the body and the mind separate. The body essentially deteriorates and decomposes and the mind moves on. And that mind doesn't continue. Essentially, the mind is impermanent. So now whatever residual memories or cravings are in that mind that is separated from the body, it moves into a new mind. And now this new mind will take on a new birth. It will take on a new physical form. And now that mind, that new mind in this new body will form a new existence. That's what the cycle of rebirth is or the cycle of new existence. The fourth one that I hear oftentimes from students after we've been talking about rebirth is, can I be a Buddhist without believing in rebirth? Well, in terms of being a Buddhist, we've already talked about that in the first one, that you shouldn't really adopt this label of being a Buddhist. And you've heard me talk in this program over the last seven months that you shouldn't believe anything, including the cycle of rebirth. You shouldn't believe anything at all. You should learn, reflect, work to independently verify, and then practice to improve the condition of the mind. So in terms of rebirth, what I suggest for students in terms of the cycle of rebirth or the cycle of new existence is to really set it to the side at the beginning of your practice. Rather than diving into it and really working to try to understand it early in your practice, instead I would suggest to focus on the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the three poisons, the natural law of gamma, what is merit, the Brahma Viharas, extensive meditation training, the seven factors of enlightenment, the 10 fetters, these types of teachings and others is what's going to lead to your awakening of the mind. If you understand the cycle of rebirth, that's wonderful, that's great. But what's happened in the past is in the past. And what may or may not happen in the future, it's in the future, it hasn't happened yet. It's irrelevant at this point. What's important to understand is right now in the present moment, you're in this human existence, which is the ideal time for you to learn and practice in order to get to enlightenment. But if you put this obstacle of the cycle of rebirth in front of you and you're working really hard to understand it, then you're kind of looking at the past. You might be looking at the future, but you're not dealing with the present moment and working to eliminate the discontentedness of the mind by eliminating pollutions of mind to awaken to enlightenment. One of the surefire ways to prove that the cycle of rebirth is the truth is that if you observe your past lives, you will know without a shadow of a doubt that the cycle of rebirth is 100% the truth. The way that you get to a point where the mind can observe past lives, and this doesn't happen for everybody, but the way that this happens is by eliminating pollution of the mind. As you work with the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, doing meditation and other teachings of the Buddha, you're gonna be eliminating more and more pollution of the mind. The mind's moving to this higher and higher consciousness. And there's the potential that you might observe past lives as that's occurring. You may have already experienced that. And that's what's actually going to lead to your enlightenment, but that's also what's going to lead to the cycle of rebirth and understanding it and observing the truth in it. If you've ever experienced a bit of deja vu where maybe you've been in a situation and you know that you've experienced the same thing before, but it wasn't in this life, this is some of those residual memories 
bubbling up to the surface of the mind, that you can actually have even more profound memories than just that as the mind awakens. Again, not everybody experiences that, but some people do. But if you put the cycle of rebirth in front of you, then you're never going to be able to get to the point where you work to actually awaken the mind through wisdom because you're so engrossed in trying to prove or disprove the cycle of rebirth. Instead, I suggest you set it to the side. And that's why in this book, the first one that I use for this group learning program, there's only really one chapter that even kind of helps you to start understanding the cycle of rebirth a little bit. It's not until volume 11 in this book series that is dedicated to the cycle of rebirth. And for a student who might study all the way through the group learning program and then into the Pali Canon in English study group, it'll take about a year and a half before you actually get to volume 11. And that's about the right time for somebody to start really looking at the cycle of rebirth in a real serious way. About a year and a half or two years into your practice, because at that point, you would have put together a fair amount of all the other teachings. And at that point, you're ready to kind of approach the cycle of rebirth and perhaps see more and more clarity in the cycle of rebirth. So yes, you can learn to awaken the mind and get to enlightenment without believing in the cycle of rebirth. And I don't suggest anybody ever believe in the cycle of rebirth, but instead learn, reflect, and practice so that you can see the truth for yourself, that the cycle of rebirth is 100% the truth. We actually don't have any evidence that we only have one life. We've oftentimes been led to believe that we only have one life. And sometimes this causes somebody to perhaps be interested in something like suicide. If you think that you only have one life and that you're experiencing painful feelings and the way out of that is to kill this body and then that's going to solve the problem. What you don't understand is that there's actually this cycle of rebirth that is occurring. By committing suicide, it actually makes the situation worse because there's more rebirth because the mind's not willing to confront the problems and address the problems. Instead, there's a death that's caused by suicide and now the problems just continue. So if we continue to believe that we only have one life, then it's going to lead us to unwise decisions. And one of those significant unwise decisions that it leads to is something like suicide. But it can also lead to other unwise decisions too. So it is helpful to understand the cycle of rebirth so that then you'll know true reality. Where some people learn that there's only one life is from various traditions. And in Christianity, some people learn that there's only one life. But this is where some people don't understand that Jesus actually taught about the cycle of rebirth. When Jesus was dying and he knew that he was going to die, he said, I will come again, right? This is the cycle of rebirth. This is being reborn. I will come again means I will be reborn. But the other teachings of the cycle of rebirth were essentially taken out of Christianity around 1500 years ago, about 543 AD. At that time, the main church that existed with Christianity was the Catholic Church. And there was a particular pope that was confronted by a king. And this king asked the pope to take the teachings of the cycle of rebirth 
out of Christian teachings. And the Pope refused to do that because he wasn't interested in changing the teachings of Jesus Christ. So the king actually put the Pope into jail. And over a period of two years of harsh treatment, eventually the Pope relented and took out the teachings of the cycle of rebirth from Christian teachings. And this is why 1500 years later, the people who are learning about Christianity aren't learning about the cycle of rebirth. They've been taught that they only get one life. But there's one aspect of the Christian teachings that wasn't taken out related to the cycle of rebirth. And this is where Jesus said, I will come again. This is rebirth. So if you've learned that you've only got one life and this is what you've believed for a really long time, you haven't seen any evidence that you only get one life other than the fact that you might not be recalling your previous lives at this time. But as you awaken more and more, you might observe the residual memories from past lives, or you may have already experienced that. So you will learn through that, that the cycle of rebirth is 100% the truth. But even when you understand that it's 100% the truth, you're still in this human existence. You still have an unenlightened mind and you need to learn and practice and train the mind, get rid of the pollution and get to enlightenment in this life. So that way you won't experience any future rebirth. But the real benefit is that you're going to also experience this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy for the rest of this life. And yes, there's not going to be rebirth to come back and experience it all over again. So there's been these countless births in the past. And even though we've had certain enjoyments and certain benefits and certain pleasures in this life, there's been certain miseries and certain sadness and certain problems in life that you wouldn't be interested in repeating. Well, if we subject ourselves to the continuous cycle of rebirth, then that means there's going to be continuous rebirth to experience these difficulties and struggles and these miseries and this grief all over again, multiple countless times. So now that you're in the human existence, this is the perfect ideal time to learn and practice, get to enlightenment, experience the peace and the joyful mind, and then no longer need to be reborn ever again. Number five here, and then I'll open up to questions after this one, is what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha? And is there a ceremony to do so? Well, the first thing is to understand what the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha is. So we've talked about what a Buddha is in the past. A Buddha is an individual who awakens to enlightenment on their own without any guidance from any teachers or any guides through their own independent journey, they awaken to enlightenment. They cultivate the wisdom on their own. Then they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings. And during their lifetime, countless people get to enlightenment based on the teachings that that individual shares that they learned through their own independent journey. And then the third criteria is that they preserve the teachings in such a condition that countless more beings can get to enlightenment after their death. These are the three criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha. The Dhamma is the teachings of a Buddha. And the Sangha is the community of practitioners and teachers. So the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha are the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. These are referred to as the triple gem or the triple jewel. And since the Buddha's lifetime, 
people have created ceremonies. They've created rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that the Buddha never actually taught, but they created these things as part of what people have decided to start doing in the world. But there is no ceremony to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha during the lifetime of the Buddha. During his lifetime, he didn't do that. He could be walking down the road and somebody could come up to him and say that they were interested in ordaining with him and being a student. And he would just move to the side of the road and he would have the person cut off their hair. They would put on a robe and now they would be on their way to the next village where he was going to be sharing some teachings. This person's now ordained. He didn't have all these ceremonies and these rites and rituals because it was about learning. It's about gaining the wisdom to awaken the mind, training the mind, understanding these natural laws of existence. There's no ceremony. There's no rites, rituals, or worship that's going to improve the condition of the mind. So there's no need for you to go out and have some ceremony done just in order to please the mind because there's no benefit that's going to come from that. You can just learn in classes. You can gain wisdom from a teacher. You can train your mind. You don't have to show up to a specific building at a specific time to do some specific ceremony or worship because it's all about gaining wisdom and cultivating this wisdom so that you can make wiser decisions in your life. That's what's going to actually lead to enlightenment, not this ceremony. But there's lots of people who do these ceremonies. So you might hear people talking about these. So that's one of the reasons why I share it here at the end of the book so that you'll be aware of what it is and just understand that you're not required to do that and you don't need to do that in order to get to enlightenment. It didn't happen during the lifetime of the Buddha and plenty of people got to enlightenment during his lifetime. And it's only something that's come about later after his death. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about any of the five questions that I've shared so far. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Yes, Teacher David. Chris Rice has his hand. Hi, Teacher David. I have two questions, particularly about the last sentence that's um, described in in the first uh, frequently asked question. And my question is, is enlightenment, otherwise known as peace, calmness, serenity, and contentment with joy, is that actually, is that true reality? Are you asking what the definition of true reality is? Or are you asking is, is it true that the enlightened mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy? I'm, I'm asking it if, they're, if they're more or less the same thing. If, if, true, if, if experiencing peaceful, calmness, serenity, and contentment with joy is equivalent to knowing true reality. Okay, so the opposite of true reality is the unknowing of true reality or ignorance or delusion, confusion, misunderstanding. This is the primary thing that keeps the mind in the unenlightened state. The opposite of ignorance in the unknowing of true reality is wisdom or the way that you're phrasing it is knowing true reality. So that's what you're working to accomplish as part of this path is being able to discover the truth through your own independent verification and reaching out to your teacher as you need guidance to be able to do that. As the mind cultivates this wisdom and completely eradicates ignorance, it will understand true reality. 
And as that's occurring gradually over time and more and more pollution is clearing out from the mind, then you'll see these glimpses of the enlightened mental state more and more, this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. As the mind actually attains enlightenment and it experiences this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, one would need to have cultivated an extensive amount of wisdom. And then that is knowing true reality. When you cultivate wisdom and you fully eradicate ignorance from the mind, the mind then understands true reality. And having accomplished that and trained the mind in that way, it will be enlightened. It will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So is is a peace, calmness, and serenity with content, and contentment with joy, is that more a side effect of knowing true reality and true reality than reality actually being consisting of those traits? It's the benefit or the results or the fruit of having cultivated your life practice where you've developed all of this wisdom and the wisdom that you're developing is the wisdom of the natural laws of existence and how to train the mind to eliminate the pollutions of mind. And once you eliminate those 10 fetters and you got rid of all that pollution, the ignorance is the last thing essentially to go. And having cultivated all this wisdom, eradicated all this pollution, deeply understanding the natural laws of existence, the mind is now going to experience the results and the benefit or the fruit of having done that, which is the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And this is why that as you're making your way to enlightenment, there'll be these various glimpses of where you'll be able to kind of experience an hour or two or a day or two or a week or two maybe, even maybe a month or two of peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. But then there's going to be some discontentedness that comes because the mind still has pollution. But over time, you'll get these wider and wider periods of time, these longer periods of time where the mind is experiencing that peacefulness, that joy. And eventually you'll get to the point where it's been a year and two years and three years and you haven't experienced any discontentedness whatsoever. And you'll know that the mind is enlightened at that point. Thank you, Teacher David. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Yes, Teacher David. Christy has her hand up. Yes, sir. Miranda Decker has a question on Facebook. She says, so, sir, could we think of the consciousness and the mind as two separate things and the residual memories and cravings that are in the consciousness are what moves through the cycle of rebirth. I think of the mind and the consciousness as the same exact thing. Uh, some people try to think of it differently, but I think of it as the same thing because if you think about the five aggregates, that the Buddha taught the form, feelings, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. This is what makes a human being a human being. The consciousness is the mind. And then there's the cultivation of the awareness of mind. So consciousness and the mind are exactly the same thing. And then there's nothing that moves from one birth to the next except for those cravings and the residual memory. So at the end of this life, when the body and the mind separate, 
that mind is going to eventually essentially evaporate because that mind is impermanent. It's not going to continue to the next mind. That mind is going to essentially evaporate and then those cravings and residual memories are going to move to the next mind. Okay, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Seems to be no more questions this time, future David. All right. So let's move to the next set of frequently asked questions which is six through 11. This is the total number of frequently asked questions. And then after we discuss these, then I will share some more teachings on how to determine if you're actually enlightened or not. So number six here is what is our purpose in life? What is the purpose of our human existence? This is a question that's frequently asked. And where this comes from is that, you know, during the lifetime of the Buddha, and even you know before that like during like caveman days people weren't really thinking about what is our purpose in life during the time when we were just living in caves and we were barely kind of talking to each other just kind of grunting and learning how to rub sticks against each other to make fire and we were trying to figure out clothing and how to gather food and stuff like this during those days you kind of kind of prehistoric human beings they were just interested in surviving. That's all that they were interested in. Their whole life was just about surviving and waking up and going out and gathering food and gathering resources and figuring out how to actually survive. But then as we've evolved into the species that we are now, we have all this time in our life. We've essentially become the dominant being on this planet. And now that we've really perfected things to the way that we have, that we have these food systems, we kind of all come together and kind of contribute to each other's life. Where during prehistoric times, if you would like to eat, it was maybe you going out to hunt or you and a couple of your friends going out to hunt or gather fruits or gather vegetables or what have you. But as a global society, we've kind of systematized the food industry and education and water and electric and all of these things that we use in order to sustain our life, making clothes and things like this, where in the past we had to do all these things for ourselves. If we would like water at our house during the lifetime of the Buddha, we had to go to the well and carry the water to our house multiple times a week in order to have water at our house. If we would like to have clothing or we'd like to have other things like food and things like this we pretty much had to do those things for ourselves so human beings in the past have been very occupied with just kind of sustaining life where now we've pretty much perfected that that we can just go get food at the snap of a finger and we can have food so with all this time in our life and having become the dominant species on this planet we tend to think well what's our real purpose here because we're kind of like not really doing anything other than going to work, coming home, eating, taking a shower, getting involved in some hobbies, you know, doing some things here and there. You know, what's the real purpose to this life? Well, what I would share with you is that it's the ego, it's that arrogance, it's the conceit that wants there to be some kind of purpose. Like there's gotta be some kind of purpose to my life here, right? There's got to be some divine purpose. Some people think this way, but there really isn't. What's really going on here is there's just nothing here. 
there's all these things that the mind grabs onto. We grab onto relationships, we grab onto possessions, we grab onto occupations and all these different things that the mind grabs onto and tries to hold on to these things. And we tend to think that this is what life is about. We're taught to seek wealth and fame and fortune and things like this. But all of this stuff is impermanent. And what's helpful for the mind is just to realize that there's nothing here. And if you can get to that point where you're okay with understanding that there's nothing here, this kind of helps the mind to let go. Sometimes people get kind of sad when they hear that, yeah, you know, there really is just nothing here. We're just kind of occupying our time with all this stuff. And if there's a little bit of sadness that sets in when you read this, some people get really sad when they read my answer to six. This is actually the mind letting go that the mind's craving and trying to hold on to this life and to this existence. And it takes pleasure in that. And then when you read this particular content in frequently asked questions in this particular question, number six, some people have written me and say they got really sad when they read my answer. And the reason why is because the mind's starting to let go of that craving, desire, attachment. And now because it's not getting the objects of its affection, it gets these painful feelings of sadness. So if you experience that, then the reply that I gave is doing the work that it's meant to do, where I say there's just nothing in this life. It's just a bunch of time that we're spending to occupy our time like a bunch of ants running around doing all these errands and doing all these tasks. Well, if you don't like the answer that there's nothing here for you and that you would like some kind of goal or some kind of objective, what I would share that you could consider making your goal or objective for this life is make the goal to get to enlightenment. That's the real goal of this existence. And that's the real goal of life is that over countless existences, we've been cultivating a certain amount of wisdom. And if you can bring all this wisdom together in this lifetime and cultivate the mind to the point where you get to enlightenment, then you don't have to keep coming back to nothing over and over and over again, because that's what's been occurring is that for countless lives, we've just been coming back to nothing and nothing and nothing and nothing again. And we try to grab on to relationships, to possessions, to occupations and things like this to try to create some purpose in our life. Sometimes people say they don't even know who they are anymore. They kind of look for this purpose in life. And then eventually they grab onto something. They have a certain purpose. They do that for a couple of years, maybe five or 10 years, but then they kind of burn out and they don't like that anymore. And now they have to find a new purpose in life. Well, if you just realize that there is no purpose to life, but if you would like to have a goal or an objective, the goal is to get to enlightenment. And now you can kind of slow your life down. You can kind of pull the reins back a little bit instead of just running to the next activity or the next appointment or to the next thing. Instead, you can realize what the real goal is here is for you to get to enlightenment. And if you have family around you that are interested, then you can help them too. So then your decisions become motivated by how do I practice in such a way to ensure that I get to enlightenment?
Or what can I share with my children? Or if there's people around you that are interested in learning, you know, you can share some of the teachings with them and help them to understand how to progress towards enlightenment. And this is the real purpose for you. And if somebody else decides that they would like to take on that goal, then wonderful, because that's what's going to ensure that you don't come back to nothing over and over and over again. The seventh question here is, can I exercise the physical body and still attain enlightenment? Where this question sometimes comes from is that the ordained practitioners don't typically exercise. And this is a real problem within the ordained community. There's a lot of obesity and there's a lot of diabetes within the ordained community because of just accepting whatever food is being given to them and it isn't necessarily prepared that well. And they live a pretty sedentary lifestyle. And when I've talked with ordained practitioners about this, what they share with me is that the reason why they don't exercise is that they feel that by exercising that this is going to require more calories. So they're going to have to eat more. And that means that the household practitioners are going to have to make more offerings in order to give them more food. So what I've heard is that they choose to not exercise because they're not interested in putting the burden on the household practitioners to be able to offer them more food. But there are places here in Thailand, certain temples that are kind of experimenting with putting gyms in the temples so that the ordained practitioners have a place to exercise and work out because they understand that they've got this problem of obesity and diabetes within the ordained population. So even though this question might come from that, it's important to understand that sometimes people think that physical exercise is an attachment. Well, let's talk about attachment a bit because this is going to help you with this question and the next one as well. The craving desire attachment isn't the object itself. So this phone, wherever my phone is, I think it's over there. I'll just use this remote control. Pretend like it's a phone. Uh, if you have a phone in the phone itself isn't the craving desire attachment. The object itself isn't the craving desire attachment. So in this example, the exercise itself isn't the craving desire attachment. It's how the mind relates to this. What a craving desire attachment is, is the mental longing and strong eagerness, the chasing after the objects of your affection, the pulling in the direction of what you want, the mental longing, the yearning. That's what the craving desire attachment is, not the exercise itself. So somebody can be attached to exercise, but the problem isn't the exercise. The problem is the mental longing in the mind. Someone can actually be attached to water. And we all know that we need water, right? If somebody went out on a trail hiking and then they realized an hour or two into their hike that they forgot their water and then they turned around with a lot of anxiety and rushed back to their car, they might have a whole lot of craving by the time they get back there like, oh my goodness, give me that water, give me that water, I'm going to die, just give me that water. This is the mind craving and longing and yearning for the water rather than just calmly making your way back to the car calmly getting your water bottle and not calmly drinking the water. That would be somebody who's drinking water without an attachment. So it's not the water that is the problem in the unenlightened mind because we all need water. It's the mental longing, the yearning for something. So physical exercise 
can be healthy and some people might choose to exercise and some people may choose not to. If you do exercise, you can do this without craving desire attachment. What craving desire attachment looks like if somebody's attached to exercising is they're typically going to want to have exercise at exactly the same time every single day. And if they don't meet that schedule, they're going to be grumpy. They're going to be irritable. They're going to be sad. They're going to be angry because the mind is craving the exercise. And when they don't get it, then they're going to be discontent. Or there might be this conceit, this arrogance, this pride that you're exercising and then look down on other people who don't choose to exercise. So this is what craving desire attachment looks like in relationship to exercise. But somebody can exercise without those things. They can make a goal to exercise at a certain time. And then when they don't meet that because of impermanence, they just understand that it's impermanence and maybe they don't exercise today or they don't exercise in the morning. Maybe they exercise in the evening or maybe they exercise tomorrow instead. And then when that occurs, they won't be discontent because of it. They won't experience anger or frustration or irritation or things like this. And a person who's exercising without attachment wouldn't have conceits or arrogance and pride because they're exercising and looking down on other people. So you can exercise without craving desire attachment, but it's important to understand that the mind can get attached to these things. And where you see that occurring, there's ways to actually train the mind to not have craving desire attachment. But that doesn't mean you have to get rid of the exercise itself. It means you need to get rid of that mental longing and strong eagerness for the exercise. Number eight is medicine and medical procedures for the body an attachment. Once again, it's really important to understand what craving desire attachment is. It's the mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, not the object itself. So you can't say that medicine or medical procedures are an attachment. It's all about how the mind relates to these things. They can be an attachment, but they don't need to be. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't take medicine or that you shouldn't do a medical procedure because you're going to need these things. We can benefit from the wisdom that we've cultivated throughout humanity that we now have medicines and medical procedures that can benefit us. But understand that the mind can be attached to these things. Let me give you some examples of that. So if somebody has a headache and the head is hurting, and then they're really grumpy and they're irritable because of the impermanence of the health of the physical body. And now they seek out this headache medicine and they're longing and yearning for it. They're looking through their medicine cabinet. They're looking through the house and they just can't find it. And now they get really frustrated and irritated because they can't find the medicine. This is a craving desire attachment for the medicine. The medicine itself isn't the craving or the attachment. It's the mind longing for it, which is the problem. And the same thing with medical procedures. There might be certain medical procedures that you need as part of being human. There are certain medical procedures that you can use in order to improve the health of the body. And sometimes those things are very important for your health and you need to pursue those things. And you can do that without attachment. But then there's other things that can potentially be a craving, desire, attachment. It just depends why the mind is doing it. It's not a black and white thing where 
the medical procedure is an attachment or it isn't attachment. It's more about how the mind relates to it. So I've had plastic surgery on my nose before. And the reason why I did this is because I had my nose broken a few times and I couldn't breathe out of my nose. And they kind of delayed the surgery until I got a little bit older because they were concerned that if they did the surgery that it would change the shape of my face. So even though my nose got broken when I was like four years old, they didn't do the surgery until I was about 16 years old. And that surgery is plastic surgery to change the septum in the middle of the nose so that it can go straight instead of being curved to the side. Well, this is done for me in that situation as a way to breathe better. And that was what was needed. But there are some people who consider this physical body to be who they are as a person. And there's a certain personal existence view there. And they're trying to change the shape of their nose because they want a certain shape of the nose. This can be a certain attachment potentially. And sometimes when we do these kind of surgeries that are elective surgeries for cosmetic purposes and purely only cosmetic purposes, then there can be the next surgery and the next surgery and the next surgery and the next surgery where the mind isn't content with just getting old and that we're going to look old and that we're not going to have youthful looking skin. So it doesn't mean that if you have a cosmetic surgery that it's wrong or that it's unwholesome or unwise or that it's an attachment. You need to think about how the mind relates to this and is there a pure medical purpose behind it? Or is it something the mind is longing and yearning for just to kind of look a certain way? But if you have a real medical purpose for medicine or for medical procedures, then those are things that you're going to use in order to improve the comfort of this physical body. Realizing that this body is impermanent and it can't be permanently healthy, but at the same time, there are things that we can do with medicines and medical procedures that will help the body be a bit more comfortable. So it's important to understand this and understand that some of these things can be an actual attachment, like a medicine. We can perhaps start taking a medicine that's a pain reliever and we're using that for pain, but then the mind gets attached to it and now it becomes an addiction. It becomes a substance that causes heedlessness. So this is where with wisdom, you can discern these things and figure them out. And where you're having difficulties, that's where you reach out to your teacher and start gaining some wisdom through asking questions so that your teacher can kind of help you see what the mind is experiencing and how the mind's relating to this. So we can't just say one particular object is an attachment or isn't because the object itself isn't the attachment. It's what's going on in the mind. That's the craving desire attachment. Number nine is what significance can I apply to dreams? Sometimes when people have dreams, they can wake up very shaken by the dream or they can be very enthused and having very pleasurable experiences. And sometimes people are looking to have their dreams interpreted by other people. What I suggest people to do is when they awake from dreams is just to leave it to the side. Realize that it's not true, that it's not actually what's happened. It's not what's part of your life. It's just what the mind does when it's sleeping and just leave it behind. So if you wake up kind of shaken by the dream, just leave it behind. Or if you wake up feeling pleasurable feelings, just leave it behind and realize that you need to bring the mind into the present moment and address whatever's going on right now in the present moment. 
rather than going out and trying to get people to interpret your dreams, this is just going to lead you more into delusion or confusion or the unknowing of true reality. One thing that you can observe with dreams is that if you have a reoccurring dream, this is most likely an indication to you of something that the mind's attached to. So if you have a reoccurring dream of your death and every time you wake up, you're very fearful that you have died, well, this is helping you see that you're afraid of death and you're craving existence. Or if you're having continuous dreams that you keep becoming wealthy and rich and famous in your dreams, this is probably because your mind is attached to that and craving that. So this can be a way that you can use your dreams to be beneficial, but I don't suggest you go out and try to get people to interpret your dreams or that you think that your dreams are gonna necessarily come true because this can dilute the mind, it can confuse the mind and take it into a condition that you're not going to feel comfortable. So I suggest you just leave your dreams behind, but if you have recurring dreams, this can be an indication of something the mind's attached to. Don't be surprised that as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, that you might go through a period of time where you don't have any dreams whatsoever. Some people will tell you that in order to have a good night's sleep, everybody has to have dreams. But this is permanence, right? This doesn't exist. You might experience an elongated period of time, multiple years, where you don't have dreams. And then you might experience dreams coming back in for a period of time. This is completely normal. This is the universal truth of impermanence. So if you don't have dreams, that's fine, but that's not permanent. There's going to be a period of time where you start having dreams again, probably, and that's impermanence. But you can just leave these things behind unless you're experiencing the same recurring dream, then use that as insight to help you potentially see any kind of cravings or attachments that the mind might have. Number 10 is, why is enlightenment permanent? So students learn about the universal truth of impermanence, that things are constantly changing, that there's this arising, there's this changing, and then there's this fading away. And we talk about this universal truth of impermanence. And then people say, well, why is enlightenment permanent if there's the universal truth of impermanence? Well, what the universal truth of impermanence is, is it's all conditioned phenomenon or all conditioned things or all conditioned objects are impermanent. So conditioned objects will arise, they will change, and they will fade away. This is what a conditioned object is. So that mobile phone that you have, it's a conditioned object. At one point, it was a whole bunch of bits and pieces and parts, and somebody put that together, and that mobile phone has arisen, but now it changes. It changes shape, it changes color, it slows down, it has problems, it's changing, and then eventually it will fade away and it will no longer exist because it's a conditioned object. It arises, changes, and fades away. Just like the feelings that you experience in the mind. When you have pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, that happiness arises, it changes, and then it fades away because it's a conditioned feeling. That feeling is based on some condition. And if that condition changes, then the feeling's going to change. It's going to move from pleasant to either painful or neither painful nor pleasant. 
because the mind has based its feelings on some condition, when that condition arises, changes, and fades away, then that means the feeling is going to arise, change, and fade away too. So when you base your inner feelings on some impermanent condition, then that means those feelings are going to be impermanent because those feelings are based on something that is impermanent. So pleasant feelings that are conditioned pleasant feelings, they're going to arise, they're going to change, and they're going to fade away. And then the same thing with painful feelings. They're going to arise, they're going to change, and they're going to fade away. And the same with neither painful nor pleasant. This is what the conditioned mind experiences. The unenlightened mind experiences conditioned feelings. The conditions are craving, anger, and ignorance. These are the conditions that are causing the mind to experience conditioned feelings. The mind keeps getting shaken up. It becomes unsteady and unstable because it's got the conditions of craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind. In more detail, it's the 10 fetters. These are the pollutions or the conditions that are causing the mind to continue to experience discontentedness. But an enlightened being is going to remove those conditions out of the mind. They're going to purify the mind through training the mind. Now the enlightened mind is unconditioned. It's been purified of these conditions. These conditions of craving, anger, and ignorance no longer exist in the enlightened mind. The ten fetters no longer exist in the enlightened mind. It's been purified of those conditions. The mind is now unconditioned. And what unconditioned means is that there's nothing that arises, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. So we've removed the conditions that are causing the mind to be shaken up. And when we purify the mind, now there's this peacefulness, this calmness, this serenity, this contentedness, this joy that is just always there. Because the conditions that were causing the mind to be shaken up have now been removed. They've been eliminated. The pollutions are out of the mind. So that means the mind is now unconditioned. So if it's sunny outside, the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If it's raining outside, the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. That's not what's experienced in the conditioned mind. The conditioned mind or the unenlightened mind, oftentimes if it's sunny outside, you're happy, you're excited, you're thrilled. But then when it starts raining or there's bad weather, then there's anger or frustration or annoyance or sadness or some other discontent feeling because an unenlightened mind has based its inner feelings on the condition of whether it's sunny or whether it's raining. An enlightened mind doesn't do that. The enlightened mind has removed that craving, anger, and ignorance. It has removed the 10 fetters so that if it's sunny outside, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If it's raining outside, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So that's why the enlightened mind is permanent is because it's eradicated the conditions that are causing these impermanent feelings. 
this arising, changing, and fading away has been eradicated from the enlightened mind because it no longer has the conditions that cause it to be shaken up. So this enlightened mental state is permanent because the mind's been purified. It's unconditioned. It experiences unconditioned mental states. These mental states, they don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. This is what's called an unconditioned object. So the peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy is unconditioned. So the enlightened mind is experiencing this peacefulness and joy despite what's going on in the world. The unenlightened mind might get angry because there's a war, or it might get sad because there's a war. But an enlightened mind is peaceful and joyful despite there being a war. This is the difference. And that's why an enlightened being can maintain these mental states permanently because they're no longer basing their inner feelings on some impermanent situation or some impermanent condition. It's been purified of the conditions that are causing it to do that. Number 11, why are donations of support for teachers of Gautama Buddha's teachings so important? So there's two main reasons why these are so important. The first one is to ensure the continuation of Gautama Buddha's teachings. The only reason why the teachings still exist in the world is because people have contributed generosity in order to ensure that the teachings do continue in the world. They've contributed time, effort, energy, and resources to ensure that the teachings continue forward into the world. And people have done that because they see the benefit in the teachings. People wouldn't support teachings if they didn't see the benefit in doing so. But over the last 2,500 years, certain people have seen benefit in these teachings, so they share their time, effort, energy, and resources in order to ensure the continuation of the teachings. So for countless generations now, since the lifetime of the Buddha, People have donated land or they've donated funds in order to build a temple or they've donated their time or their effort to contribute to some event or some situation where these teachings can then be shared. And this allows additional people to continue to learn. We have a word for this now that we call pay it forward. So people in the past were learning the teachings and then paying it forward and then paying it forward and paying it forward. And now the teachings have reached you and you learn the teachings, you develop the mind, you get closer and closer to enlightenment. And then as you benefited from the people in the past who made contributions to allow the teachings to continue, an individual might decide that these teachings have been helpful for their life. So they're going to make contributions of time, effort, energy, and resources so that future people can benefit from these teachings. And this preserves the teachings and ensures that they continue forward into the world. So this is the one reason of this. And then there's a second reason as well. The second reason is that generosity leads to enlightenment. One of the primary problems in the mind is craving desire attachment. The mind is holding on, it's clinging. It becomes very selfish when it does that. It wants everything to be mine, 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 mine. 
Well, an enlightened being doesn't function that way. And with this craving and this holding on and this selfishness, the mind is holding on to your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources, thinking that if I exert one hour of time, I want to get this back, something of equal or higher value. And the mind becomes very selfish, pursuing its own selfish desires. But in order to get to enlightenment, you need to be willing to give and share more than is strictly required of your time, effort, energy, and resources. And what this does for you is it helps you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, where instead of having selfishness and holding on to things, clinging to your time, your effort, your energy, your resources, your finances, you know, mine, 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 mine. Instead, you make offerings and you share, you give your time, effort, energy, and resources wherever you would like to do that. And that helps your mind to let go. There's generosity that you practice as part of the path to enlightenment in all aspects of your life. But there's one particular type of generosity that we call merit, where you're sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources in order to help the continuation of the Buddhist teachings. And this helps you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. It helps you to eliminate doubt about the teachings, and it allows other people to benefit from the teachings. So you're paying it forward and helping other people to benefit and allow these teachings to continue in the world. And this allows you to eliminate the selfishness. The Buddha calls it the stain of selfishness. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have. Remember, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Yes, sir. Chris has his hand raised in Zoom. Hi, teacher David. The book says that you suspect the human ego in prehistoric times may have had virtually no ego, but does that mean that the teachings and enlightenment wasn't nearly as important to them as it is to us? During prehistoric times, I don't think they understood enlightenment or even knew that that was even an option or something that was possible. You can look at today's society. There's only a certain number of people in the world that even understand what enlightenment is or that it even exists or even that the Buddha exists. You know, there's some people in the world that don't even understand that there was such thing as a Buddha. So during prehistoric times, in my opinion, I would think that what they were really mainly focused on is just survival. And that's what they were doing. And then they were trying to figure out how to communicate, how to create heat, how to make clothes, how to survive in certain climates. You know, what things can they eat? What things can they not eat? Certain things that they ate and they didn't realize it was poison and they would die. This was cultivation of wisdom that we were gaining as a species. And we've been evolving as a species ever since the very first human beings. And now, at this time in space, is an opportunity for us to evolve even further as a species by everybody more and more choosing to progress towards enlightenment. We can all evolve as a species and become more and more enlightened. And this will help us all as a collective humanity. But I would suggest that during cave person times and during prehistoric times that they weren't thinking about enlightenment. The teachings weren't in the world back then because we couldn't even communicate. We couldn't even talk with each other at that time. Thank you, Teacher David. Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir. And Chrissy has uh, raised his hand. Hi, Teacher David. Um, Brandon Hines 
Haynes has a question on Facebook. It says, hello, teacher David. This goes back to rebirth. When one experiences rebirth, is it immediately after death? In other words, if one was to die as a human and be reborn in the human realm, would that rebirth occur immediately somewhere else in the world? Rebirth doesn't occur immediately. There's a period of time where there's a gap and each life is a different gap because of the universal truth of impermanence. So one of the things that I sometimes share with people when we start talking about this is that I have observed past lives and I observed two previous human lives before this. And from the first human life to the second human life, there was about a 500 year gap. And from the second human life until now was almost about a 2000 year gap. So that's how long it can actually be. And I imagine it can be even longer in some cases. So it's not an immediate rebirth. There can actually be a gap in between these. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Chris has a question. Hi, I DJ David. I, I actually had a similar question. Is, is it possible that sometimes rebirth or a new existence could actually be uh, in the past rather than um, new existences continue, continually um, progressing in the future? Can someone ever be reborn in a previous time after their death? No, that's not true because it's not like there's two parallel worlds and one is the present moment and one is in the past. It's not possible for that to occur. There's only the present moment. So if somebody experiences death in this life, then if there's rebirth, it's going to be rebirth in the present moment, but it's going to be at some future present moment. There's no way to go back to the past. So the idea of a time machine to go back to the past, it sounds pretty interesting. And there's been, of course, lots of movies and speculation on those kind of things, but it's not true reality. It's not possible for that to occur. Thank you for answering my question. You're welcome, sir. Yes, teacher David, there's some comments. I call them comments in, in uh, YouTube. Uh, I was watching that, uh, that uh, for any questions and I said, and I'll just read this through and you can, you can address these if you don't mind, sir. Uh, so I said, good morning, every, uh, everyone welcome. Now I'm gonna probably make a mess of his name, but the world teacher, and uh, I'll try to pronounce this, his name correctly, Jagadguru Sumami Veganada, uh, okay, at, or, or commented, your quotes logic is uh, capital letters, underwhelming, sir. And he comes back the, in capitals blind, leading the blind. So then I uh, asked, uh, please type your questions in this chat, and they, we asked the teacher David. Then this world teacher puts a clown emoji there uh, and then I didn't know how to respond anyway I put uh, I please answer your ask your questions in this chat and they'll be asked by teacher David so then uh, this world teacher comes instant incidentally comma slave comma are you a vegan how would you like to respond to this person's comments thank you sir I don't think there's anything to respond because they haven't asked any question and we can just ignore it. 
Thank you, Teacher David. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Yes, sir. I think that's all the questions at this time. All right. So let's move on to the next part that I was going to share with you guys, which is how to determine if you've attained enlightenment. There's a few things that I'm sharing with you here to help you understand about how to determine if you've attained enlightenment. But the first thing I would like to share with you is that the attainment of enlightenment, it's not a finish line. It's not like you attain enlightenment and you realize, okay, I've attained enlightenment. Now I'm going to just stop and not do anything. And it's not like it's like a minute ago you were enlightened and now a minute later you are enlightened. It's not like a, a switch gets flipped. Instead, there's this gradual progression to enlightenment where the qualities of the enlightened mind start shining through more and more brightly as you get closer and closer to enlightenment. And as this is happening, the mind is gradually developing your life practice. So as you develop this life practice more and more and you see that things like meditation and practicing right speech and right action and right livelihood and all these other teachings are benefiting you, once the mind actually is in the enlightened mental state, it's not like you're going to say, well, now I can just give up. I can stop practicing now. It would be very unwise to ever convince the mind that you're actually enlightened. This can be very dangerous and very detrimental to the mind because the ego can be in there trying to convince you that you're actually enlightened or further along on the path when you really think you are. And then the mind can become complacent. So I don't suggest that you ever convince the mind that you're actually enlightened because not only can it become complacent, but then arrogance and conceit can seek into the mind and there can be this pride that comes into the mind. And if you are experiencing complacency or you're experiencing conceit or arrogance or pride, the mind is not enlightened. So one of the best ways to know that the mind is not enlightened is that you will tell people that you are enlightened. If you tell people that you are enlightened and they're boastful and you're prideful, then this is essentially an indication that the mind isn't enlightened. So rather than convincing the mind that you're enlightened and potentially allowing complacency or conceit to come into the mind and then the mind surely isn't enlightened where the mind might be interested to give up or stop practicing the teachings, an enlightened being is not gonna stop practicing the teachings. In order to get to enlightenment, there would have been a whole lot of challenges and struggles and difficulties along the way. But each time you gain more and more wisdom, you will overcome those challenges and those struggles and the mind will become more and more enlightened because you're gaining more and more wisdom as you're overcoming those challenges. So as you're moving your way to enlightenment, it can be quite a challenge. It can be quite a struggle. There can be some days where it can be even exhausting to some extent, but by the time your mind actually gets to enlightenment, you'll be practicing these teachings effortlessly. So where right speech at one time was very difficult for you as you're making your way to enlightenment as an unenlightened being, by the time you get to enlightenment, you'll be practicing right speech effortlessly. And that goes to all of the factors of the Eightfold Path, where each one of them were struggles at different times. That's just because you lack the wisdom of how to practice them. Once you gain the wisdom of how to practice them and you're readily practicing them more and more frequently and more and more with ease, by the time the mind does get to enlightenment, you'll be effortlessly practicing all these teachings and it won't be such a chore. It won't be so much work. The Buddha explains 
what had to be done has been done because you've done all this work. So you're never going to get to a point where as an enlightened being, you're just going to stop practicing the teachings. Instead, you're going to continue to practice them. But eventually, as the mind's enlightened, it just becomes effortless. It's so easy to do so because the mind's been so well trained and those pollutions aren't there hindering you and making it difficult. The wisdom has been fully cultivated so you can do this with ease. The second thing to think about in terms of determining if you're enlightened or not is that an enlightened being is going to be fully practicing the eightfold path, which includes the four noble truths and the five precepts. And there's other teachings that plug into the eightfold path. The Eightfold Path is the core central teaching that the Buddha shared, and then other things plug into it. He shared a certain level of detail in the Eightfold Path, but then because he's not going to share all the detail in one particular teaching, instead it took him 45 years to share all the teachings. So this one particular teaching of the Eightfold Path shares a certain level of detail, and then there's other teachings that kind of supplement and complement the Eightfold Path and give you further detail. And the Four Noble Truths and the Five Precepts are a common example of that. And there's others as well. So a enlightened being is going to be fully practicing the Eightfold Path effortlessly. And you would know the Eightfold Path inside, outside, backwards, forwards, left, right. It's like the back of your hand by the time you get to enlightenment. You'll have cultivated right wisdom to the point where you could be at a smoothie shop enjoying a smoothie as an enlightened being and somebody walks by and says, hey, you practice Buddhism, don't you? I've seen you giving talks or I've seen you meditating at the park. By the way, what is right intention? And as an enlightened being, you'd be able to really easily share like, oh, right intention. This is the intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, and this is the intention of harmlessness. And you'd be able to explain it very easily and very effortlessly because you would have had to cultivate the wisdom in order to learn the Eightfold Path and you would have had to been practicing it very deeply. So if somebody were to ask you a question about the Eightfold Path, you'd be able to effortlessly explain it because you have cultivated right wisdom, which is one of the factors on the tenfold path, because an enlightened being is going to be practicing the tenfold path. And the ninth factor is right wisdom, and the tenth factor is right liberation. So an enlightened being is going to deeply understand the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings. It doesn't mean that they're going to be a teacher, because an enlightened being can be a business person, they can be a politician, they can be a community leader, they can be a stay-at-home mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. They can do anything that they would like. Essentially, getting to enlightenment is like the beginning of the rest of your life. Because as you experience the unenlightened state throughout this life, it was a real struggle. There was a lot of misery, a lot of despair, a lot of displeasure and grief. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you've overcome all of that. And now the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And now you have this focus, you have this concentration, this clarity of mind, this deep memory. And you can now do anything and everything that you ever were interested to do. 
You might be a person who's always been interested in flying an airplane, but you never did it because you didn't have the confidence and you didn't think that you could have the intellectual ability to do something like fly an airplane. But if you've gotten to enlightenment, you've overcome the struggle of all struggles. You've finally tuned the mind to function optimally. And now you have this focus, this concentration, this clarity of mind, this deep memory, you might choose to go learn how to fly an airplane. So it's like the beginning of the rest of your life. Whatever it is that you're interested in accomplishing in life, you'll be able to do that a lot easier, a lot more readily, and a lot more successfully as the mind becomes more and more enlightened, and it actually is enlightened. So this is what an enlightened being is going to be able to do, is be able to practice the Eightfold Path and experience the results of having done that by experiencing this fine-tuned mind. Remember, if a musical instrument is tuned too tight and you pluck the string, it doesn't sound beautiful. If it's tuned too loose and you pluck the string, it doesn't sound beautiful. The instrument doesn't play the way that it was intended to play. So the music doesn't sound beautiful. But it's only when you tune the string perfectly in the middle that you pluck the musical instrument and it plays beautiful music the way it was intended to play. Your mind is exactly the same way. If you're holding on to things too tight, the mind's not functioning optimally. And if it's too loose, it's not functioning optimally. But through the path to enlightenment and training the mind and purifying it, you're optimizing the mind, helping it to function the way that it was intended to function. And now, because of that, purifying the mind, it's going to be focused, it's going to be concentrated, there's going to be clarity of mind, and there's going to be this deep memory. And you'll be able to now do anything and everything that you've ever been interested to do. And you'll do that much more readily as an enlightened being. And as you're getting closer and closer to enlightenment, you'll start seeing that life will be much more smooth for you as you get closer to it. This third one is when you have attained enlightenment as an otter hunt, you will have eliminated all the 10 fetters. The 10 fetters are those 10 individual pollutions of mind. And in order to get to enlightenment, you will have to eradicate all 10 of those. And I covered those back in chapter three, and we're gonna be discussing those more in this program. And as I teach throughout the years, I'll be teaching these at different times, but you can see those in chapter three because we discussed those, I shared those with you, they're in the book. I've taught classes on those multiple times, and there's gonna be more classes on these as we go forward. So an enlightened being will have purified all those 10 fetters. What a fetter is, is it's like a ball and chain around your ankle. It's like shackling you to this life of discontentedness this cycle of rebirth. The mind is trapped in this cycle of rebirth, continuing to experience these rounds of discontentedness over and over and over again. And because the mind hasn't cultivated wisdom and it hasn't eradicated the pollution of mind, it's continuing to experience this discontentedness over and over and over again. And it's continued to experience rebirth over and over and over and over again. But when you get to right wisdom, and you get to right liberation, that's through practicing all the aspects of the Buddhist teachings and purifying the mind of the 10 fetters. It's like breaking away from this ball and chain and the shackle around your ankle so that now the mind is free. 
it's free of discontentedness. It's got this freedom. It's now free of the cycle of rebirth. And it's through purifying the mind of those 10 fetters that you understand how to do that. So there are certain solutions that the Buddha explains as part of the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. These are craving, anger, and ignorance. And he explains the problems in the unenlightened mind through craving, anger, and ignorance. And this is kind of like a higher level description of what the problems are in the unenlightened mind. And he explains certain solutions at that level. But then there's a much deeper level of understanding where you understand the 10 fetters. And this is a much more detailed description of what the problems are in the unenlightened mind, the individual pollutions. And then there's individual solutions for those individual pollutions. You would need to learn these things, implement them, purify the mind. And as you do so, when these fetters are gradually being diminished, that's why discontentedness gradually diminishes as well. Because as the pollution of mind is going lower and lower and starting to be eliminated and getting diminished, the discontentedness is also going to diminish as well. And then once the 10 fetters are completely eradicated and eliminated from the mind, then that's why discontentedness will be 100% eliminated from the mind because it's no longer polluted. All the conditions that are causing discontentedness have been eliminated from the mind when the 10 fetters are eliminated. Number four, you will have cultivated a mind that is completely practicing the Brahma Viharas. This is chapter 14 in volume one. These are the four healthy mental states, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. In order to understand these four healthy mental states, not only do you understand what the healthy mental states are, but you also understand what they're antidoting or what the remedy is, what they're solving. So anger, hatred, and ill will is remedied by loving kindness because loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. It's this active goodwill. So when there's anger, hatred, and ill will in the mind, you will have transformed that with loving kindness and you will permeate the mind with loving kindness to the point where there's no longer any anger, hatred, and ill will in the mind. And then there's this compassion or this concern for the misfortune of others. This is helping to eradicate the indifference in the mind where the mind can have this indifference towards other people's difficulties and struggles. And when you're experiencing that, you can identify that as an unwholesome quality, cut that off and let it go and arise this compassion or this concern for the misfortune of others. Then there's this sympathetic joy, which is joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it. This is the antidote for jealousy or envy. So wherever you see jealousy and envy arising, you cut that off and let it go and you arise this sympathetic joy where you have this joy for others' success. Even if you don't really feel it 100% in the mind, you're trying to arise this quality in the mind. So you've got to kind of bring it up into the mind. So where you see the mind even having the slightest amount of envy or the slightest amount of jealousy, you need to bring in the sympathetic joy and kind of push out the jealousy and the envy. 
and then more and more you'll get to the point where you have eradicated that and there's only sympathetic joy in the mind that when something happens for somebody you'll just automatically be joyful for their success and then the fourth one is equanimity there's two aspects to equanimity the one part of equanimity is calmness composure evenness of temper especially in difficult situations so this is where the mind can be in the middle completely calm completely tranquil completely focused having this calmness and this composure especially in difficult situations and this is going to eradicate the worry the stress the anxiety so wherever you see the mind doing that you cut that off and let it go and you arise this equanimity so if you get a call from your child's school that something's gone wrong, maybe they're physically injured or they're having some problem at school, you might want to drop everything and rush out the door, hurry up and get to the hospital. What happened? What happened? What happened? Right. But in that situation, your mind is shaken up. It's uncalm. So therefore, it can't access wisdom. The reason why is because when the mind is uncalm, it doesn't have mindfulness or awareness of mind. So therefore, it doesn't have concentration or singleness of mind, focus. And when you don't have concentration, you can't access wisdom. So what you would like to do in these situations where you see the mind has this anxiety or this worry or this stress, it's shaken up. Maybe there's a difficult situation that's occurring. You then arise this equanimity and this calmness, this composure. And again, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. Internally, you might feel the shaking up, but you've got to arise this calmness and this composure so that then when you arrive to the hospital, you can now have calmness, you can have awareness of mind, you can have concentration, and you can access wisdom, and you can talk to the doctors, the nurses, figure out what's going on, and start making wise decisions about the situation to bring it to a conclusion in a wholesome way. Whereas if you allow the mind to be shaken up and you bolt out of the house, you might actually get into a car accident on your way and make the situation worse. So this calmness and composure, this evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation, this is helping you to make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. If you allow the mind to be uncalm and shaken up, you're not going to be able to access wisdom. So you're going to make unwise decisions that are going to lead to unwholesome results. So by maintaining your composure, then you can ensure you're always functioning through wisdom. The other aspect of equanimity is to treat all beings fairly. This is where rather than looking at people in society and looking at people as being above you or below you, instead you look at everybody equally. Even though other people don't necessarily do that, you're going to need to train your mind to do that in order to get to enlightenment. So there might be different people in your country that are performing different roles in society but one person isn't above the others or another person is above them. This is instead the animal existences of where the mind wants a pecking order. Because when we were in an elephant herd, we needed the matriarch to show us where the water and the food is and how to kind of stay together as a herd. And we needed the alpha male and alpha female of our wolf pack to breed and to fight and to hunt and to show us how to do things as wolves. 
And this was part of our animal existences. There needed to be a certain pecking order. But in this human existence, we don't need that. We don't need a pecking order. But a lot of unenlightened minds are still doing that. And that's where the ego comes in. And people want to put themselves above and below others. But where you observe your mind doing that, instead you need to cut that off and just treat all beings equally, arising this aspect of equanimity. And that's going to help you reside in your relationships, both personally and professionally, more harmoniously. Because now, instead of you putting yourself above or below people, you just see yourself as equal. Even though other people might not see it that way, you need to train your mind to look at it that way. And this will help you to practice all of these Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. The fifth one is the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment, oftentimes people think that this is to determine if you are enlightened or you aren't enlightened, but that's actually not what the seven factors of enlightenment are. Instead, they are a tool that's helping you to fine tune the mind. Because as you're making your way to enlightenment, there's going to be times where your mind is in this excited state and you need to bring it down. And there's going to be times where it's in this kind of sluggish state and you need to lift it up and bring it into the middle. So the Buddha gives us the seven factors of enlightenment to practice in order to help us fine tune the mind. The first factor is mindfulness. This is awareness of mind and specifically the four foundations of mindfulness. This is where you have awareness of the mind at all times during your day. And the Buddha explains how this is always useful because if you're going to purify the mind of the unwholesomeness and arise wholesome qualities, you're going to need to have awareness of the mind. So you'd like to practice mindfulness as soon as you're waking up all day long and as you're going to sleep, always practicing mindfulness. And then where you observe that the mind is sluggish, you're going to then practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, and the enlightenment factor of joy. These are explained in chapter three, helping you to understand what these are and how to practice them. And what that does is it lifts the mind up out of the sluggish condition and brings it into the middle. And then when you observe with mindfulness that the mind is excited or elated, then you practice the enlightenment factor of tranquility, of concentration, and equanimity. And this is what brings the mind out of that excited state and into the middle and fine tunes the mind. And this is what's helping you to find that middle and then stay there. One of the ways to think about this is that if you had a piece of wood and you took a piece of steel and you grinded that piece of steel back and forth on the wood, when you first started grinding the steel on the wood, it will pop out very easily because there's no groove yet that you've worn into the wood. But the more that you grind this piece of steel back and forth on the wood, the deeper and deeper you make this groove in the wood, the harder and harder it is for the steel to pop out of that groove. And then when you notice it, it's easy for you to bring it back into the groove. So what these seven factors of enlightenment are doing is giving you the tools to bring the mind back to the middle so that then you get used to the mind functioning in the middle. And the longer that you're able to keep it there, the more used to that the mind gets to being in the middle. 
and it's less likely to pop out because it's spending more and more time in the middle. This is what meditation is doing. This is what the AFO path is doing. This is what you're doing in your daily life is you're practicing to keep the mind in the middle and bring it to this point where you can now focus and have concentration and clarity and deep memory. And then the mind can be peaceful and joyful. And then as you observe that it does pop out, you've got the seven factors of enlightenment to pull it back in. And now it just gets used to being in the middle for longer, longer periods of time. And it's less likely to pop out. Eventually, as the mind is enlightened, it'll just always be in the middle. It'll never pop out. And then the last one here, number six, is the way that you'll know for yourself that you've attained enlightenment is that you will have eliminated 100% of discontentedness of the mind. You will no longer experience any conditioned feelings whatsoever. So those conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant will be completely eliminated. So conditioned happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, this is all eliminated in the enlightened mind. The sadness, the anger, the frustration, the irritation, the annoyance, all of that is eliminated. The guilt, the shame, the fear, the shyness, the resentment, the jealousy, the displeasure, the despair, the misery, the grief, all of this is eliminated from the mind. Now, one of the things that students sometimes ask me is like, hold on a second, I'm eliminating happiness and excitement. What are you, what are you talking about, David? That doesn't sound like something I'm interested in pursuing. Remember, you're eliminating the conditioned happiness. What conditioned happiness is, is that you're basing your happiness on some condition. Essentially, the mind is like a three-year-old kid throwing a temper tantrum. If you give me what I want, I'll be happy. But if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to be angry and frustrated. So you're eliminating that. Instead, you're getting this unconditioned joy where there doesn't need to be any condition being met. So if there's 50 people in the class that I'm teaching, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If there's one person in the class, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Or if I show up to a class someday and there's no students there, okay, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If you're basing your inner feelings on the condition that there needs to be a certain number of students in the class, then you're only gonna be happy when that number is met. And then once that number is met, you're gonna want more and more and more and more. But if you eliminate that from the mind and you can arise this joy that's just always there, that's going to be beyond pleasure and pain. These are words that the Buddha uses. He talks about enlightenment as being beyond pleasure and pain. So you're no longer experiencing this temporary, unsatisfying happiness. It's unsatisfying because it's only temporary. Instead, you're fully fulfilled. You have this inner fulfillment because the mind is always satisfied. It's always joyful, no matter what's going on. So that's what you're experiencing as an enlightened being. You've eliminated all these conditioned feelings of discontentedness, and you're experiencing this unconditioned joy. So the mind needs to be willing to let go of this temporary happiness in order to get to this permanent joy. And that's what an enlightened being is doing through the pursuit to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this material here? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom to ask any questions that you like.
Yes, sir. Chris has a question. Hi. In the past, you have indicated that refraining from lying is a black and white precept where lying is never wise. But that refraining from killing is sometimes more of a gray area. Can you explain why this is and how to navigate the gray areas of the five precepts? So this would be a more extensive reply, Chris, because to talk about each individual precept and all the different gray areas and all of those kind of things, it would be better to talk about that at a time when we can allocate time for that. But understand that there's certain gray areas with the Buddhist teachings. They're not always black and white. There's some things that are black and white. Like you've seen me reply in the Facebook group recently, like, you know, snorting cocaine, it's black and white, right? There's never a time where that's going to lead to wholesome results or rape, for example. There's never a time where rape is going to lead to wholesome results. But there are certain situations like killing where, of course, we would like to live compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. This is what the Buddha shared. What some people translate that as no killing. The Buddha didn't say no killing. The Buddha said to live compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. So this means you don't intentionally take the life of another being. But you also need to balance that with something like loving kindness and compassion. So you're not going to actively go out and look to kill a living being. But if you were at home and somebody broke into your house at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, they're not bringing you chocolate and roses. Instead, they're coming in to cause harm. And you would like to cause as least amount of harm as possible. But if you need to defend this physical body, you should do that. And if this person's life gets taken in the process, then this is their gamma. They're the ones who chose to come in and cause harm. You didn't choose with intention to go hurt this person, but you're just showing loving kindness and compassion to this being who you are now, and you're protecting this physical body. And you can try to do that with as least amount of harm as possible. But there are some rare situations where you may end up needing to take the life of this person, but you're only doing that as a result of their actions. You can do that without hatred. You can do that without anger, without any of those ill will that's in the mind. But you would only do that as a last resort, of course. So each one of these teachings of the Buddha this is where a teacher is helping you to navigate and understand this natural law of gamma because there are certain things that are black and white but there's a really large gray area it's really easy to see the black and white but the gray area is much more challenging for people to see the clarity on that and oftentimes it takes certain discussions and questions and conversations to be able to see that gray area more and more and understand the wisdom of how to make decisions when you're confronted with a situation that's more gray rather than black and white. Thank you, teacher. Mm-hmm. Yes, teacher David Tonka has her Zoom hand up. Hello, teacher David. I heard few uh, public speakers saying that Buddha said that the world, world is illusion. So I was wondering if it's something in line with the teaching uh, we we are studying from Paul Cannon, or is it something due to impermanence that people kind of edit? 
the Buddha never said that the whole world is an illusion. This is part of that ignorance or the unknowing of true reality or the delusion or confusion. Because the words of the Buddha aren't really in the world and very deeply out in the world and really shining in the world, there's a lot of people who are thinking that they are practicing Buddhist teachings or that they understand the Buddhist teachings, but they've never actually seen the words of the Buddha or actually studied the words of the Buddha. So if somebody's sharing that the Buddha has said that the whole world is an illusion, then there should be a reference to the Pali Canon because the Pali Canon is the original source teachings. And that's the only way that people pretty much know what the Buddha actually said because it's documented in the Pali Canon. So if it's not in the Pali Canon, if somebody says that the Buddha shared that the whole world is an illusion, that's just hearsay. And that doesn't actually match to what we know to be true reality. One of the things that I usually share with people when they say that the whole world is an illusion is I ask them, I say, well, when you go across the street and you cross the street, do you look both ways? And they say, yes, of course I look both ways. And I say, well, why? They say, because there's a truck and it might hit me. And I say, well, I thought the whole world is an illusion, right? So people can say one thing and then you look at their actions and their practice and they do something completely different. And this is where their mind is confused. They have misunderstanding. They have ignorance or unknowing of true reality. It kind of sounds cute to say that the whole world is an illusion. Well, why do you look both ways when you cross the street if the world is an illusion? Because the world isn't an illusion. There is a real tangible world here that we can touch and we can feel. And we need to understand this world through the natural laws of existence. And when we understand it, then we can make wise decisions that produce wholesome outcomes. So anytime somebody shares with you that the Buddha said, then if it doesn't sound proper to you, you can ask them, you know, do you have a reference to the Pali Canon? And if they can't produce that, then you can do what the Buddha shared. Is that the Buddha shared that when somebody shares something that doesn't match to his discourses, he says that you can consider that this person has misunderstood his teachings and you can ignore what they say. So everything that somebody shares about the Buddhist teachings should connect back to the Pali Canon in one way or another. The way that we do that is through a reference. And this is why all the materials that I share that have the words of the Buddha, there's a reference there to show you exactly where that connects back to the original source teachings. I just thought it didn't sound uh, like Buddha's teaching, but I just wanted to confirm with you because I personally didn't read Pali Canon or any of that. So yeah, it didn't sound like Buddha's teaching to me. Yeah, what you try to do when you hear people talk like this is of course you can go back to the Pali Canon, but some of these things you can actually reflect on your own, right? Because something like when somebody says the world's an illusion, okay, can I touch this light? Can I touch this computer? What's an illusion? What is an illusion about this computer? How is this computer an illusion? So oftentimes people say these things off the cuff or they're trying to sound cute or there might be some arrogance or ego there. Sometimes it's even unsolicited guidance. Whenever you're getting unsolicited guidance, 
this is very suspicious because you know in order for you to receive unsolicited guidance that means the person has a certain amount of ego a certain amount of conceit a certain amount of arrogance and pride because somebody should only share these teachings with you if you seek guidance for them so if you ever are in a situation where someone's sharing unsolicited guidance this is really suspicious not that they're necessarily a bad person but someone who's enlightened isn't going to share teachings in an unsolicited way and if somebody isn't enlightened that means they haven't acquired what the buddha called final knowledge final knowledge is where you cultivate all the wisdom to have what's called right wisdom where you've cultivated enough wisdom that you've eradicated ignorance and now the mind is actually enlightened so when you've attained final knowledge the mind is actually enlightened and someone who has final knowledge will deeply understand the teachings and be practicing them closely so someone who's sharing unsolicited guidance they don't understand that that's not part of this practice there's still conceit there's still arrogance there's still pride you know that they haven't attained final knowledge so anything that they're sharing is already kind of suspicious and when i say suspicious it means that it's most likely not accurate that's what i'm i'm sharing thank you mm -hmm. you're welcome yes teacher david chrissy has her zoom hand up yes thank you um my question is um in regards to chris's question about the great area um mentioned um with taking the life of another being um and how it is approached when critters enter the home um what is your suggestion for a person who's trying to practice loving kindness for all beings um and has like traps set and is not practicing loving kindness for all beings when <laughs> when they're you know taking the life of beings entering their home <laughs> Yeah, so if it's like insects or things like this that you can easily kind of transplant back outside, that would be the best thing. You know, if an ant gets on you, you might kind of sweep it off or blow it off with your breath. Things that are a little bit more aggressive, maybe like mice or rats or snakes or things like this, you know, there's ways to humanely move them on. And this requires more wisdom. This is where we cultivate wisdom, that there's things that you can do to kind of ensure that these things don't come into your home. And when they do come into your home, there's oftentimes ways to get rid of them without killing them. But there are some situations where this needs to occur. And that's why the Buddha didn't teach no killing. He taught to live compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. So let me give you an example like termites or bed bugs or something like this. It would be wonderful if we had a humane way of getting rid of these things and eliminating them out of our homes so that we can live comfortably without being infested by termites or bed bugs. But today there really isn't any way that I know of to 100% get rid of these things. But as a person who's living compassionately and having loving kindness and compassion, you can do some research and see if you can figure out a way to eliminate certain insects and certain animals from your home. And then if you can find those, wonderful. You can do that in a way that doesn't cause death. 
But there are some situations where maybe the only way to get rid of bed bugs is to actually kill them and hire somebody to come in and do that. Or the same thing with something like termites. Because if you allowed the termites to eat your house, that wouldn't be loving kindness for you and your children and other people that dwell in your home. So this is where that gray area is that you understand that the Buddha didn't teach no killing. He taught to be compassionate for living beings because by being compassionate for living beings, it's working to eliminate anger, hatred and ill will out of the mind. That's what you're working to do. He didn't say preserve all life at all costs that's something completely different and that would be black and white where instead he said to live compassionately for the welfare of all living beings and if you live compassionately where you're trying to find a way to get rid of these animals or insects without killing them then you're living compassionately for them and then ultimately if you need to do the killing either you or hire somebody to do it then that's what you might choose to do and that helps to take care of what's going on in the home. So there are situations like this where it wouldn't be loving kindness and compassion to allow these things to continue. And that's where we can cultivate wisdom to make decisions in a better way that when we don't see these teachings as black and white and we learn to navigate the gray area, then we can make better decisions and we don't feel so rigid because the Buddha didn't teach these as commandments or rules or thou shalt do this that's not the way he taught instead it's guidance that you can cultivate this wisdom and now navigate life with this wisdom i understand sir thank you mm -hmm. you're welcome chris had his hand up i guess he took it down i think that's all the questions for now sir okay well i have a few more things to share with you that's at the end of the book it's the very very end of the book there's some content there that I share the final words of the Buddha. And the final words of the Buddha are where he's starting to realize that he's about to die. And he kind of gives people a heads up that he is going to die. I don't have those words here, but I have them in other parts of the book series. As he's getting closer and closer to death, he knows that this is occurring. This is how enlightened he is, that he knew exactly when he was going to die. So about three months before he dies, he starts letting people know that he's actually going to die. And some of his students were actually kind of pleading and begging with him, you know, not to die. These are people who weren't enlightened, of course, because the enlightened beings, they knew, okay, of course he's going to die. He's impermanent. But there were some students that were pleading and begging with the Buddha not to die. And the Buddha ultimately starts delivering these discourses to kind of wind down his teachings and kind of prepare his students for understanding that he's about to die and essentially giving them a heads up if they have any remaining questions before he does die. So these are some of his teachings as he's getting closer and closer to death. He says, Wonder forth, O monks, for the welfare of the multitude, for the peacefulness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare, and peacefulness of heavenly beings and humans. Teach, O monks, the teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing. Reveal the perfectly complete and purified holy life. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are falling away 
because they do not hear the teachings. There will be those who will understand the teachings. Now let me share with you what he's actually sharing here. This first paragraph, he's essentially sharing with you why people should share these teachings. And if you're choosing to teach, how you should essentially do that out of compassion for the world, not because you're looking for fame or fortune or to be acknowledged as a great and wonderful teacher, but because you have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, you have this concern for the misfortune of others. There's this loving kindness and compassion, this interest in seeing others be well. That's why one might choose to teach for this peacefulness and helping others to experience peacefulness. And then in terms of teaching, he shares with us that you should have teachings that are good at the beginning, good in the middle, and good at the end. Essentially, all the way throughout your talk as a teacher, you should ensure that you're sharing deep and penetrating teachings with the right meaning and phrasing not just kind of haphazardly throwing some words together that may or may not be the most accurate representation of the teachings, but instead using accurate phrasing and the meaning behind the words to ensure that it's penetrating wisdom and the students can understand it. And that good in the beginning, middle and end, that means like when you start off teaching, you should be consistent throughout your discourse as a teacher so that your students can be actively learning all the way through your teaching instead of maybe starting strong and then kind of fading away or maybe starting off kind of boring in your talk and then kind of building towards the end instead he's saying in the beginning middle and end be consistent and have this real helpful meaning and phrasing so that your words can be penetrating and help the students deeply understand what it is that you're sharing as teachings and then he says, reveal the perfectly complete and purified holy life. This is kind of revealing the life practice that it takes in order to get to enlightenment. Because there's beings with little dust in their eyes that are falling away because they don't hear the teachings. If you've ever slept and you've woken up and you had some sleepies in your eye, this is what he's talking about the dust in your eyes, the little bit of dust in your eyes, that if you're sleeping and you wake up and you have just a little bit of dust and you just need to get that little bit of dust out of your eyes and then you can see, this is what he's talking about in terms of an unenlightened mind, that there's some beings in the world that aren't deep, deep, deep in the darkness. There's some beings who are very deep, deep, deep into unwholesome things and very deep into darkness. But then there's other beings who just need a little bit of help, maybe to understand a little bit of the Four Noble Truths, a little bit of moral conduct, and then they're kind of in a year or two, maybe getting to enlightenment. But then it takes other people, maybe five years, 10 years, 20 years, and that's okay because we're all on our independent journey. But the Buddha is talking here about beings who have just a little bit of dust in their eye. They're very interested in doing wholesome things. They're very interested in understanding the wisdom of these teachings. And they just have a little bit of dust that they need to clear out from their mind. And that's going to help them to then experience enlightened mental state. And the Buddha says there will be those who will understand the teachings because not everybody is going to understand the teachings. Even during the lifetime of a Buddha, not everybody studied with him. He lived in a certain community, 
but only a certain segment of the population actually studied with him. And out of the people who studied with him, only a certain segment of those people actually understood and practiced the teachings. So it's going to be a bit rare for people to perhaps decide to actually learn and practice and be able to practice in such a way that they can actually understand. But the Buddha is saying there are those who will understand. That's why you don't see Buddhist teachings spread all throughout the world yet, because it's a very limited number of people who can actually have the dedication and the diligence to learning and practicing. And not everybody's going to be there even during the lifetime of the Buddha, not everybody's going to be interested in learning and practicing. That's the universal truth of impermanence. Some other things that are at the very back of the book are this teaching that I shared that says, the only war worth waging is the war within the mind. Win that war and you have won everything. So this was written about three, four years ago, maybe five years ago. Even now that we have this war, you can probably understand this teaching even more closely that there's really no benefit to war whatsoever. I've never seen any war that produced a wholesome result. There's always death and destruction as a result of every single war. But there's this war inside the mind where the mind is bombarded with all these thoughts and this unwholesomeness. That's the real war that is worth waging. And if you win that war, you've won everything because the mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy for the rest of this life. You'll no longer experience rebirth. So that's the war worth waging. And once you do that, and once you accomplish that, once you win that war, that's where you've won everything. So this is just some words for me towards the very end of the book. And then just a reminder of some things as you start learning these teachings. And now if you've been learning in this program for seven months, and maybe some of you have taken this two or three or four times, that as you start learning these teachings and you understand them more and more, you might look around the world and you see the teachings everywhere. You see impermanence. You see discontentedness. You see right speech and you see wrong speech. You see generosity and you see selfishness. You see anger and hatred and you see loving kindness and compassion. The Buddha says, one who sees the teachings sees me. Right. So while he was getting ready to die, these people were pleading and begging with him not to die. And he's like, hold on a second. I shared the teachings. If you see the teachings around you, then you see me. That's how you know he existed, because you can see his teachings everywhere around you. And then he also shared one who sees me sees the teachings. This is essentially like saying he's a living, breathing, walking example of his teachings. A Buddha teaches through speech and through discourses, but they teach even more so through their actions. By them practicing the teachings, being that living, breathing, walking example of their teachings, their students can learn how to practice these teachings through having their teacher or this Buddha during his lifetime be the role model. And they can observe that the teacher is teaching right speech and they're also practicing right speech. And you can learn through the intellectual learning of the discourses, but you can also learn through observing your teacher practicing right speech. Or you can see your teacher practicing some you know, aspect of the path like right 
mindfulness or right concentration, you can see them doing that on a regular basis where they're focused and concentrated and they have clarity of mind. But then you can also learn about it intellectually as well. So the Buddha says, one who sees me sees the teachings. He's a living, breathing, walking example of his teachings. He didn't preach, but you all understand this phrase that he practiced what he preached. And that's the way that you should be interested in living your life too, is that as you're learning and practicing these teachings, practice what you do, right? If we teach our children to do one thing, we should also practice that as well. That's really important because as you're practicing these teachings, your children are learning from you. So sometimes we like to just teach through our words and we think everybody should listen to us, but we're teaching just as much, if not more, through our actions. So by us purifying our own mind and then being able to practice these teachings closely, then we'll see that the people around us tend to also start to practice a bit better as well. So if you start seeing the teachings around you, this is like seeing the Buddha. Or if you would like to use this other part to be a role model, an example, and kind of help people around you, whether it's your children or your life partner or others, to help them see that you're practicing the teachings. You don't need to go around and tell them that you're practicing the teachings, but just by you practicing, they will actually tend to kind of observe your practice and learn from that. And this can be very helpful in your life. And then the Buddha's last, last words and the last thing that I'll share with you guys today is here he's getting ready to take his last breath and he shares this last teaching with his students. Ananda is one of his closest students and he says to Ananda, Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will at my passing be your teacher. Now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. And then he lays his head down and he dies. These are his last words. He knew exactly when he was going to die. So a Buddha is going to teach all the way through his life. Even his last words are a teaching. This is what a Buddha does. And his last words, his last teaching is actually the very beginning of the path. The very beginning of the path is to understand the universal truth of impermanence. That's the very beginning that a student needs to start off understanding that. So when he says, now monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are a nature of decay. What he's saying is this universal truth of impermanence is affecting this physical body too. The only reason why this physical body is dying and I'm no longer going to be with you is because of impermanence, that all conditioned things are a nature of decay or are of a nature to decay. So this physical body is dying because this universal truth of impermanence affects a Buddha as well. And this is his last teaching, but it's also the very first thing that you need to understand as part of the path to enlightenment, that conditioned objects or conditioned things are going to arise, they're gonna change, and they're gonna fade away. And the physical body and the mind is a conditioned object. None of us can escape death. We're all going to experience death 
at the end of this life. And if we've done all the work that we need to do, this will be our very last time that we will no longer experience continuous sickness, aging, and death over and over and over and over again. This can be the very last time. So these are the last words of the Buddha. This is the very end of the book. The only other content in the book is a glossary of words and a little bio about me, just a little brief little bio. But other than that, that's the only thing that's at the end of the book. And I'll just kind of open up to any questions that you guys might have before I kind of wrap things up and finish up our class today. I don't see any questions at this time, sir. Okay. All right. So what I'd like to share with you guys is that our next class next Sunday is going to be the five hindrances. This isn't in the first volume. It's in other parts of the book series, but it's something that I teach at the very end, the very last class of the group learning program, because for seven months, I'm teaching students what is the path to enlightenment and how to actually attain enlightenment. But now at the very end, I share with you, these are the things that are going to hinder you from getting to enlightenment because you're going to need to overcome them. You're going to confront them. You're going to see them. You're going to experience them most likely. So you're going to need to know the wisdom of how to overcome them so that you can actually get to enlightenment. So that's what I have as the very last class next Sunday is called the five hindrances. And I'll share that with you next week. And then after that, all of our classes for November and December, there's four classes on Sunday in November and four in December. And here, what I'm going to share with you are the classes from the USA retreat that I did this summer. There's eight classes that I taught there in addition to everything else that these eight classes are new classes that I haven't taught anywhere other than there. And all these classes are about harmony and relationships and how to create harmony in your relationships. I didn't write about these. I haven't put them in the book. But I'm going to be sharing these as part of this program and continuing on through the end of the year through Sunday and Wednesday, just like I've been doing all the way through the group learning program. So if you're continuing to come on Sundays and Wednesdays, you're going to learn this new content that I haven't taught anywhere else than the retreat in the USA. And that way we'll get a recording on our podcast and on the YouTube channel and in Facebook for people to be able to watch on the replay. And then... At the beginning of January, I'm going to restart the group learning program all the way over from the very beginning. And then I'm also going to be restarting the Polycanon program that's going to be restarting from the very beginning. The Polycanon and English study group, you can actually join that program at any time. Even though I say I'm restarting it, there's people that join that all the way throughout because it's a year and a half program. So you can come in and out of that program as you like. Same thing with the group learning program. People have joined at different times. But if you're interested in restarting or you have friends or family that are interested in starting the group learning program or the Polycanon and English study group, January, I'm going to be restarting both of those. So that will be an ideal time to be able to start. And then in the meantime, we'll have these other classes that I'll share with you. So thank you all for joining for our class today. I'll be sharing the teachings continuously throughout the rest of this life. And you guys will be able to continue to learn either online or in person at all the various in-person training that I have. And I just would like to wish you all a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. And perhaps this program has been very helpful for you as you've progressed throughout the seven months. And I'm sure that none of you have gotten to enlightenment yet in just seven months. But 
perhaps if you've been learning and practicing and doing the work, you've seen the improvement to the condition of your mind gradually and slowly. You've seen that improvement to the condition of your mind. And if you're not seeing that, then there's something that you aren't understanding that you need to seek guidance on. You need to reach out and get help. And you can do that through the Facebook group, through asking questions in these classes, through sending a private message, or through scheduling personal guidance. So I'm more than motivated and willing to support you on this path as you choose to reach out and seek guidance. So have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. We'll see you in a future class. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.